This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another edition of the Great War Channel podcast. And today we're traveling to the Baltics, more specifically to Lithuania. And I have to say I'm quite happy about that. Uh, first of all, we had our first Lithuania-focused episode a while ago, which everybody was very positive about. And it seems that we have a big Lithuanian fan base. I mean, big relative to the size of Lithuania. And that means I'm even more happy today that we have an expert on Lithuania. Yes, uh, Lithuania was not also sort of the center of my history world. Um, but I was, I remember the first time I kind of got into the Lithuanian uh, story was years ago, I had a friend played basketball on the same team. Basketball is the national sport in Lithuania, for those of you who may not know. And I also had a close Polish friend at the time. And over a few beers, I, they quickly made we, me aware of the rather complicated history uh, in the region. And once we'd sort of uh, wiped the blood off of the table, I then uh, I had that anchored in my consciousness from, from then on. So it was a pleasure to talk to her to talk to uh, Dr. Balkelis uh, today about his book, which kind of goes beyond the traditional, the usual narrative of, you know, wars of, of liberation to create these nation states in the wake of the old empires and uh, sort of reveals a bit more of the complexities, uh, which is a familiar story, I think, to us and any, any of you listeners out there who've been following the channel since 1918. Yeah, I think even if you don't really care much about Lithuania in particular, you should listen to this interview because A, I think you will find Lithuania's history more interesting afterwards and B, I think a lot of the things uh, he talks about and how he approaches kind of dissecting this history of the country in this turbulent time can be applied to different historical periods and, of course, to different countries at the same time as well. And, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, if we had infinite time on the Great War, uh, we would, you know, dive deep for every country uh, on that, that level of detail. But that's maybe another, another topic for a podcast episode about the realities of the attention economy. <laughs> Indeed, but it was a it was a great opportunity to uh, dive into Lithuania a bit more today, and I uh, I enjoyed it. So, without further ado, enjoy the interview, and we will see you next time. So, as usual, we have a fascinating guest lined up for today. I'm very happy to welcome 
Dr. Thomas Balkilis uh, with us today. He's the senior research fellow. He's a senior research fellow. Oh, you might be the senior research fellow. I'm not so familiar with the Lithuanian <laughs> Institute of History in Vilnius, but um, be that as it may, for our purposes today, we're going to focus on uh, a book that he published, I believe, in 2018, so relatively recently, entitled War, Revolution and Nation Making in Lithuania. 1914 to 1923. And of course, that periodization is quite interesting to us, given what we've been covering on the Great War Channel. Dr. Balkilis, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so let's dive in with our traditional first question, which is uh, maybe a bit more of a personal one. Why did you decide to write this book? I mean, you'd already written about the formation of the modern Lithuanian state and so on some years earlier. What questions were you trying to answer now that you hadn't answered for yourself uh, in your previous work? Well, um, there were several reasons and uh, several big questions that I was interested in. And starting with the reasons why I decided to write it, well, the, the, the initial reason was very simple. You know, I was teaching um, a module uh, on the Baltic uh, regional history in, in Ireland at University College Dublin. And I encountered, you know, the fact that there is a really a great shortage of up-to-date English language academic literature on, on the region in general. So my desire was to, to write something, you know, synthetic, something coherent, something that would apply not only to one single country, but also to the whole region. So that was the initial motive. And also, I, by, by teaching you know, in the West for quite a few years, I, I developed the desire to explain to the English-speaking audiences uh, of what happened in the Baltic region after the Great War. Because this narrative that we have today, which is very popular, and it is well, most uh, well known in the West, is the narrative of the Russian Civil War. But you have to realize that it was only one of the conflicts there. So in the Baltic region uh, and in Lithuania, more specifically, there, was, there were many more things happening than the Russian Civil War. So my desire was to provide this kind of general narrative to the English-speaking audience to tell you now what happened, uh, actually. And also, um, my major uh, kind of academic reason why I decided to write it was uh, the desire to connect two large historiographical traditions that often they refuse to talk to each other. They don't talk to each other. I'm referring here to this kind of traditional um, uh, historiography, which centers on the Russian Revolution and is very Russian-oriented. It, it looks mostly at the at, at uh, centers of revolution, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and so on. You know, proper Russia. And uh, it is very popular in the West. It, it is well established. Uh, and also, there is a, another historiographical tradition, which is dominated by national historiographies on revolution. Uh, and, and this tradition looks um, mostly at peripheries of, of the Russian Empire, places like uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on. And the problem is that these uh, historians who, who work on both in, in both traditions, they often kind of ignore each other. So 
and, and and what you have today, you know, if you if you look at places uh, like uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus, you have this nationalism dominating in this historiographical tradition, which often ignores the social dimension of post-World War I conflict in the region. On the other side, you also have the ignorance of these national revolutions that happened uh, in the region. So my desire was to bring together this nationalist and socialist revolutionary perspective to show how entangled they were with each other. And I chose Lithuania basically as the example of this. Uh, now I'm, I'm going to answer the second part of the question, uh, uh, like what was the, the major questions that I was trying to ask in the book. Well, I think the most important question was to ask state you may create under conditions of long-term violence. So when I looked at, at history of Lithuania in the early 20th century, I realized that from 19... 14 to 1923, this society, this region, lived under conditions of war violence. So there was the Great War that starts in the summer of 1914, and it goes on. Uh, Lithuania is occupied by the German forces in 1915. The, the war finishes in November 1918, but then you have an explosion of new violence. And the, the, the period of so-called independence wars, and uh, also you have a dirty war between Poland and Lithuania happening until basically early 1923. So, and this is the time when Lithuania is built as an independent state, also as the, uh, the, the modern Lithuanian society emerges during this period. So the question is, what is the relationship between violence uh, and nation-making in the regions? That was my major priority. The second question I was looking at was, uh, what was the connection between the violence of the Great War and, and the post-World War I conflict? The conflict that started in 1918. Because you know, there are different you know, ideas how to connect these two conflicts. So I was trying to, to, see, uh, to, to establish some continuities between these two conflicts, violence of these two conflicts. And, but also I wanted to, to challenge this br brutalization thesis, which goes on that the violence was kind of accumulating throughout the periods. I was trying to show, you know, how these conflicts were related, but also very different at, at their core. My, my third major question was, how did the violence affect non-elites or, so to say, ordinary people, refugees, soldiers, peasants, POWs, uh, people who were displaced by the war? How did, how did these, you know, uh, regular citizens or ordinary uh, People cope with violence. We often hear, we often hear, you know, about the political elites during the period, about their projects. Uh, there are, there is a bunch of diplomatic histories written how these new states like Lithuania emerged after the after the Great War. But we don't really have good narratives of how these ordinary people lived, you know, in provinces how violence played out, you know, in their everyday lives. So that was my kind of, uh, my, my book was kind of an attempt to write a social history of war in Lithuania, looking down at these, you know, regular folks, uh, ordinary people, how they're surviving, how, what strategies they develop, you know, in these conditions of violence. And my final major question was, how did the political elites in Lithuania and also in other uh, places in the surrounding region, 
managed to mobilize the borderland populations for their state and nation building projects. I was trying to establish so-called mobilizing moments, certain junct junctions, historical events, when people in the region were uh, uh, mobilized for, for this nation building pro project in Lithuania. Uh, I'm, I'm talking here not only about military mobilizations, but also about cultural mobilizations, social mobilizations, political. So, so basically, you know, that th those were the major questions I was trying to deal with. All right. Uh, that sounds quite ambitious when you, when you list them all out like that. Let's, let's maybe try to break them down uh, into a few different aspects that I'm curious about in particular. And I want to start off by asking you to tell us a bit more about the role of the Great War. So this is like, you know, the classic uh, big conflict. It's also the conflict that started off our, our uh, video series on YouTube. So what role does the Great War have in influencing this then subsequent emergence of an independent Lithuanian state uh, in its aftermath? Well, um that's the the central question absolutely you know to, to answer very briefly you know that there would be no independent lithuania or latvia or estonia if you will and other post versalian states if not the great war if russia and germany have not lost the war it is most likely there would be no lithuania or latvia or estonia um and the second point about the great war is that the very idea of independent Lithuania, I mean the, the, the political idea, emerged during the war. It was the war that mobilized Lithuanian political elites to think about uh, their future independence. Uh, before the war, also there were people who wanted some kind of you know, independence, but most of the debate, in, I think in, among all uh, uh, kind of uh, non-Russian elites within the Russian empire, uh, most of, of the debate was about receiving autonomy or different forms of federation. Not so much about, it wasn't so much about political independence before 1914. So what happens, you know, during the Great War, when you have the splintering uh, Russian empire and, and then the German empire will go as well, you have a large space for these political, new political actors, uh, Lithuanian political elite, Latvian, Polish, who are starting uh, building you know, very specific plans how to gain full political independence for, for their own states. So uh, this is what's happening in, in Lithuania. And also, uh, also uh, there are many Lithuanians who are displaced by the war. By the Great War, you know, about half a million Lithuanian refugees find themselves in Russia, in, in proper Russia, in places like Moscow, or Odessa, uh, St. Petersburg, even Vladivostok. And what they do there, they, while being in Russia, they are mobilized for the idea of their new independent nation state. They start developing these, you know, strategies how to, how to build independent Lithuania. So, and uh, not only refugees are involved in this national mobilization during the war, also you have the majority of Lithuanians, they, they stay in Lithuania, which is 
during the wartime occupied by the German forces. It, it does not exist as some kind of entity called Lithuania. It is called the Ober Ost. Uh, it's a military German occupation state run by people like Ludendorff. And also um, what you have there, um, you have the Germans, especially after 1917, looking for different ways of incorporating Lithuania into the German Empire. And they come up with this idea, you know, that they should get some kind of local political elites supporting the, the, this idea of incorporation. And that's how they establish the space for the emergence of this so-called Lithuanian National Council. It, it is a bunch of Lithuanian political leaders who kind of work together with the Germans. But with, with, in the course of the war, when the German military effort goes down, you know, they realize that they have uh, a political space to claim a totally independent Lithuanian state. So uh, the war itself in this situation creates the space on the German side, you know, to, to promote this idea of independent uh, Lithuania. And finally, <clears throat> um, I have to say um, um, that the, uh, the Russian Revolution, um, that was also brought by the Great War, forced the, in, in the long run, forced the Western allies to support the idea of Baltic buffer states, of independent Baltic buffer states, including Lithuania. Initially, as we know, the, the Western allies, they were quite ambivalent or reluctant to think about these small post-Versalian Baltic states as, you know, having uh, a real political identity. Um, but when the white, when, when the counter-revolutionary white project failed by the end of 1919, uh, the, the Western allies, especially the, uh, the British, I would say, they started looking at the idea of independence of Baltic states uh, very seriously. They started supporting the Baltic states. And, uh, and this support was very vital for their survival. And, uh, and uh, in the end, you know, the Lithuanian political elite and also the Latvian, Estonian political elites, they, they bought very eagerly into this idea of national self-determination as offered by Wilson and, and the Western allies in, 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 during the Paris Peace Conference. So they also became very strong you know, supporters of this in, idea of independence. And so basically those are the major ways, you know, how, how the Great War opens the political space for, for these, uh, uh, for independent Lithuania and other new nation states that merged after the Great War. And this is all in particular uh, fascinating to me because these are the kinds of questions that often provoke a lot of debate and discussion on on the on the internet in particular because that's where we operate in, in our area of work where we produce our, our history content from people who have uh, a quite different idea perhaps from high school perhaps from popular culture about the emergence of or the the independence of Lithuania on the longer scale and it's it's fascinating to think about it getting this burst that wasn't anticipated, that wasn't a long planned, you know, national dream for centuries, going back to medieval times, which is a narrative that uh, is still quite popular out there, um, not necessarily amongst uh, academics as much as it is 
uh, among some of the general population these days anyway. So let's, uh, let's take a little diversion to an earlier period uh, because some of our commenters, and I'm inspired in this question by, by one comment in particular, where I think I said in our episode about Lithuania that uh, there was a formation of a new, the new state of Lithuania. And, and uh, one of our viewers answered, Lithuania was not a new state. It goes back to the Grand Duchy and uh, in medieval times and so on. So what is, what is the importance of, of the medieval Lithuanian state in this modern uh, creation of, of Lithuania after World War I? Uh, it is important. Yeah, it, it's a very important idea, you know, but uh, when we talk about the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and I will refer to it uh, GDL, you know, just to save more time, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, GDL. Well, it, we, of course, you know, uh, we know that it wasn't any kind of nation state. It was a multi-ethnic state in which Lithuanians, occup uh, Lithuanian population, you know, was a very small fraction of the, of the whole population, which was largely Slavic. And the borders of that state extended basically at this peak, you know, from the Baltic Sea to, to the Black Sea. So, uh, of course, you know, the Lithuanian national uh, elites in, in the early 20th century, they're looking back at, at, at this, you know, tradition of statehood, but they also realize that uh, this model of, you know, uh, multi-ethnic state is not really what they want. Uh, so, um, uh, this tradition of state of, G of GDL, you know, is very important in building kind of historical mythology of independent Lithuania. And this is already being done even before the Great War in the 1880s, you know, in the 1890s. I'm referring here to the, these early Lithuanian nationalists. Uh, for them, it is important to establish this historical uh, tradition of statehood as opposed to the Russian and Polish tradition, making the argument that, look, we Lithuanians, we also had our own separate states, like you Russians did and like you Poles did. So this is very important for their kind of identity, for, for their national identity, which is which is transformed, of course. It's not the same, you know, as in times of, of the GDL. And when the war starts, actually, uh, there was even an attempt uh, to recreate the GDL in late, in December 1915, in Vilnius. The idea was promoted by a joint effort of several Lithuanian, Belarusian, Jewish and Polish left-wing left -wing and liberal elites in Vilnius. It was the idea that never worked, actually. It was the idea that remained only on paper. Those people, what they did, they, they just issued, you know, a couple of very important proclamations. But there was no support for this idea among the uh, masses of population in the region, and also the Germans at the time, and they, and they were in control at the time. This is 1915, you know, they were not interested really. They were not uh, proponents of, of this. So this idea is kind of left behind. And um, gradually those uh, national elites, they kind of separate, they go their own ways. So Lithuanians, they start talking about uh, ethnic Lithuania defined in very narrow, small borders in comparison with the GDL. And the Poles also, they, they go on about uh, the, their national state. Um, I think also what I want to say that very important 
it is very important that the idea of G GTL initially stimulated various early federal projects of Lithuanian statehood. So I'm referring here even uh, to the period prior to the Great War. One, for example, some Lithuanian uh, political leads uh, offered, you know, uh, an idea of a joint state of Lithuania and Latvia, or of Lithuania, Russia, uh, and Poland. There were some crazy federal ideas, and I think these ideas, you know, they, they were based on, on, on the idea of the GDL and also on the idea of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that emerged, you know, after the GDL. So, answer, uh, answering this question with, with the final point, which is, which is that only as late as 1916, the Lithuanian political elites managed to formulate the idea of their fully independent nation state. So there was a bunch of uh, conferences organized in Western Europe, in Bern and Lausanne, for example, in which the Lithuanians, they already openly and publicly stating that they want their small ethnically defined nation state, not the GDL, but kind of a small version of, 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 of Lithuania. And of course, uh, this idea was developed in the, in the competition with the, with the project to create the new Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It, by, by the middle of, of the Great War, by 1916-1917, the Lithuanians, the, the political elites of Lithuania, they realized that the idea of recreating the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is a trap for them, because they felt that they will be a minority in this type of new state. And, and this idea of recreating GDL and, and the Commonwealth basically um, is supported mostly by the Polish elites, by people like Pilsudski, you know, and I'm referring here to his so-called uh, Menji Moja project, project, you know, which uh, he came up with this idea of kind of rebuilding a very large state that would extend from Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Poland, uh, Belarus, and Ukraine as the kind of buffer state against the, against the Russian expansion. Coincidentally, including the area where he was born, right? In Absolutely, yes, because Pilsudski, he was from Lithuania. He was, he was born not far away from Vilnius. So, um, so by, by, by the middle of the Great War, by 1916, I think, you know, this idea of recreating GDL is dead for Lithuanian nationalist elite. They already kind of separated. They are going to go their own way, looking for this ethnic independence. Okay, um, good. I'm glad we got the we got the medieval uh, question out of the way. It's one that I've seen uh, crop up on numerous occasions. Uh, now you mentioned in your initial um, in your initial comments about you know, what your questions were you were trying to answer in the book. One of them was about this idea of mobilization. And I want to ask you uh, about that. I mean, I think most of our listeners are certainly familiar with the idea of a military mobilization, right? The war begins, state mobilizes the army, sends it off. Um, but obviously for you, the term mobilization extends uh, to other areas. So when you talk about these mobilizing moments, uh, what does that mean for you in the context of uh, the birth of, of Lithuania here? Well, when I, when I use this term mobilizing moments, and I'm not defining the, you know, this term very strictly because the mobilizing moments for me are certain historical events, certain historical junctures 
that had significant public impact on the emergence of the Lithuanian identity. Uh, certain uh, political events, for example, can be described as these mobilizing moments. Uh, for example, I opening my book by describing a small uh, violent incident that happened in in Kaunas, in the capital, in, tempor in the temporary capital of Lithuania, in the spring of 1990. And this is, you know, the, uh, uh, the event during which a Lithuanian soldier was killed by a, by a bunch of German soldiers, by, by a bunch of German Freikorps volunteers. And what happened after that, you know, there, there was an explosion of kind of anti-German feeling in the next few days in Kaunas. And the Lithuanian government basically was able to mobilize the society against Germans, just using this, this one violent incident. So this is what I describe as kind of mobilizing moment when, when, when you use you know, a certain historical juncture, especially violent juncture, uh, to mobilize, uh, to get you know, the political support for, for, your, for your political projects. So, but, but this is only a very small example. I, I, for me, these mobilizing moments, they are meant to be, first of all, political mobilizations, for example, caused by the elite to defend their own state or the government to give you a more specific example for example when the Zhiligovsky troops the polish troops invaded uh, independent lithuania in uh, in the fall of 1920 uh, the lithuanian government in konas you know they mobilized the whole society not only the soldiers but also the civilians different paramilitary forces this is what i call political mobilization and 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 this kind of resistance was used to to, to mobilize the whole Lithuanian society for the dependent state. Uh, I, I also refer by, by using this term, uh, uh, mobilizing moments, to cultural mobilizations. By cultural mobilizations, I mean, I mean different propaganda campaigns against so-called the moral enemies of the nation. So in, in the case of Lithuania, they were Bolsheviks, po Poles, Germans, uh, Jewish profiteers, you know, this this group of people also is very described as kind of uh, enemies of, of the nation. Uh, so uh, these labels were developed, you know, uh, supporting a certain set of values uh, that would define the Lithuanian identity. Uh, that, this is what I call uh, cultural mobilization. And also, my final point about this term is that uh, these uh, mobilizing moments, they were also social mobilizations. For example, the land reform that happened in, in Lithuania, it started basically during this violent period in the early 1920s. So the idea was, uh, if you defended your new Lithuanian government, you were entitled to receive the land. And many local peasants they, they, they did defend this new political project simply because they wanted the land. This is what you call social mobilization of people. You know, if you, if you kind of turn uh, the land issue towards certain political direction, you may use it, you know, as, as a mobilizational tool to spread the Lithuanian identity to, to, to gain support for your political project. Taking a page out of the... Uh... Bolshevik revolutionary playbook, I suppose, in a way, you know, mobilizing through land reform. Um, right. Then 
I want to sort of shift into the violence uh, side of things now. And this is a topic that's received, uh, I think, a fair degree of attention recently about um, violence, in particular, you know, paramilitary violence and so on, and, and state formation in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I remember using uh, Mark Jones's book about uh, Germany and the violence in, in the post-war years quite a bit. Um, how did violence affect people's attitudes and actions in this period uh, as the Lithuanian state is coming into, coming into existence? Well, uh, absolutely, you know, this is the key theme of my book. So, you know, violence played out on, on several very important levels. If we start with this early period, you know, the book starts you know, with 1914, with the beginning of the Great War. So uh, I, the first argument that I make is that uh, World War I violence destroyed the legitimacy of imperial states, of, of imperial uh, Russia and also imperial Germany, and created a space for new state structures to emerge. And when I when I when I say you know destroy the legit, legit, legit legitimacy of empires, I mean those brutal war policies that Russia and then Germany imposed on the population of uh, of the borderland region, including Lithuania. Uh, I'm referring here to the so-called Great Russian Retreat of 1915, when about half a million of uh, Lithuanian uh, of civilians uh, were displaced from Lithuania into, into Greater Russia. And also I'm referring here to the violence uh, of German occupying regime, of the Oberost, uh, forced labor recruitment schemes, um, massive uh, um, requisitions, uh, massive uh, restrictions of, on the movement of population, massive epidemics that happened in Lithuania, so by the end of the Great War, the, the, the social contract that was built between uh, local population and the imperial states, either it is German or, uh, or Russian, is broken. Uh, the local people, they realize that they don't want to be part of these you know, imperial structures anymore. They're looking for new forms of kind of statehood. That's, this is the first point. Um, the second point about this is that um, wars helped the elites uh, to build the state structures of, of their new state. And in these new state, in, this, in, in, in these structures, paramilitaries became the auxiliaries of the new national army. They were used to fight both external but also internal enemies. Uh, to purge the body of nation of undeserved. How you create the state, in, 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 you know, you, you, you use paramilitaries that perform, you know, this local violence, and these paramilitary structures gradually are turned into kind of um, permanent state structures. Uh, one of the ways of kind of mobilizing population through, through the violence, because these paramilitary organizations that I'm referring to here, for example, the Lithuanian Rattleman Union, they were mostly citizen organizations. They, those were not regular soldiers recruited into the army. Those were the local people mobilized in towns, villages, and, and so on. Um, the third point about how violence is important here, violence creates 
we and they stereotypes that serve collective self-identification. And it applies only, not only to Lithuania, but also to the whole borderland region. Violence forced people to choose their national identities during the time, during this, you know, those nine violent years. And to give you an example, more specific example, for example, in 1920, 1923, you have, uh, uh, a conflict in Eastern Lithuania between the Polish and Lithuanian sides in the so-called neutral zone established by the League of Nations. You have a lot of people there who don't have clearly defined national identities. They are so-called Tuteshi or people from, from the vicinity, local people. But when violence starts there in 1920, when Polish and Lithuanian militias, they start attacking each other, the civilians there, they are forced to choose the sides. So even if you didn't know who, the, who you were, whether you were a Pole or a Lithuanian, you were forced to choose the side. That's how, you, you, that's how national identity is being imposed on you in the region. So that was my kind of example to il illustrate this, this point about we and their stereotypes. Uh, my third point about violence is that all these war, wars, I'm referring here to the post, World War I conflict helped the elites to build so-called political bridges to the people. In Lithuania, like in several other new states, the total national mobilizations were modeled on total mobilizations of the Great War. In other words, to say it very briefly, you know, all these wars, they used to mobilize the societies. You know, the, the political elites are able to gain uh, the support for their ideas in Lithuania during this, this violent period. So violence is like a mobilizing engine for, 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 for the society. Uh, for example, by creating, you know, the home front, you know, in during these wars with, with Poland, with the Red Army, uh, and uh, with the German and white forces of Bermontavalov and so on. Uh, my next point about violence is that violence always offer mythologies that endow population with a sense of meaning and unique identity. So uh, if you look at you know, what happened after this violent period in Lithuania and places like Poland or Latvia, Estonia, you had uh, the emergence of the canon of kind of um, commemoration tradition of these independence wars. So it's not the great war that is remembered in these, in these states, but the post-World War I conflict. Monuments are built for the, for, for the fallen soldiers of Lithuanians, Latvians, and Poles. Different social rituals of commemoration are developed. So uh, these mythologies, this violence helped to establish the official mythologies of these new nation states, including Lithuania. And uh, another uh, um, point is that paramilitary violence uh, uh, that exploded during this period empowered ordinary citizens uh, as opposed to the elites. And uh, different paramilitary organizations that emerged during this period, they were like a social ladder for ordinary people living you know, in small towns and villages. Um, and uh, well, that's, that's about it. You know, I could provide some other you know, kind of aspects of this, but I think you know, the main points that I mentioned were absolutely critical. So then, for our last question today, I wanted to take us into the realm of how historians uh, like you try to 
grapple with describing these type of uh, very messy uh, situations in history. And historians who've, who focused on this region in, in uh, the post-First World War period, there's all sorts of different ways of describing it, ways of talking about the, the violence and the warfare. There's this idea that it's a series of wars of national liberation. There's emphasis on the revolution. There's the concept of regional civil wars, uh, Central European civil war of Jochen Böhler, for example, with whom we've uh, spoken. The idea of borderland wars, shatter zones, bloodlands, etc., etc. Now, you use a term that I had not uh, really been familiar with uh, before called uh, a multi-directional war. So why, why did you choose this term to try to describe what's happening in the region? And what do you think its explanatory power is that some of these other terms maybe don't have? Well, this term multi-directional war, for me, it is... Um, much less politically loaded than the terms like civil war or wars of liberation or independence wars or borderland wars. You know, the term multidirectional war largely describes only the nature of war, not, not the reasons why it happens. So uh, I, I tend to use this term because I'm not happy with what's going on uh, in the current historiography, I'm not happy that this all-encompassing uh, encompassing, paradigm, paradigm of the Russian civil war or its version of multiple civil wars is being used all over the East European region. I think it's, it is too narrow uh, because uh, what happened in, in the borderlands that extend uh, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea uh, uh, there were, of course, no civil wars there, but the, also the, the, the were, there was a bunch of interstate wars, for example, wars between Poland and Lithuania, between Poland and Ukraine, between Latvia and Germany. When the Latvians were fighting you know, the German Freikorps, there was a moment when Latvia declared a war on Germany, actually. Also, there was a conflict between, let's say, the Lithuanian army and German and white Russian uh, troops of Bermontovalov in uh, late 1919. So how do you fit in all these little wars into this paradigm of the Russian Civil War? I think, you know, uh, the, of course, they're entangled, they're related, but they are not the same. So I think this paradigm of the Civil War is really too narrow as well as to claim that all these wars were the wars of liberation, uh, national liberation. A lot of these wars, they had features of civil conflict. So you had, in Lithuania, you had red Lithuanians uh, fighting white Lithuanians. You had red and white terror campaigns in the Baltic region, for example. And also, uh, what is really missing, you know, if you use this, encompassing, uh, if, if you describe, you know, all this conflict only by civil war, uh, you, you are missing on the local picture. Uh, you're missing, you know, on this uh, paramilitary violence that erupts in remote villages, in small towns, for example, in Lithuania or, or Poland. So when I use the term multidirectional, 
I want to include in, 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 in it, you know, also those little violent groups which often lacked the agency. I'm referring here to local partisan bands, local militias, even to local bands of robbers that used, you know, the, the time of state collapse to enrich themselves. I'm referring here also to anti-Semitic violence that often is not really ideologically based, uh, but it, it, it's happening all over the place in Poland, in Lithuania, in, in Ukraine, especially in Russia. So uh, I think that the, the term multidirectional is really uh, less uh, ideologically neutral and um, it opens more space to include those uh, uh, performers of violence which often lacked uh, the agency. And that's why I think you know, it could be useful when we, when we talk about it. And my point here is that this multidirectional war is happening all over the place. If you look you know, at Poland, for example, Poland, Poland fights five large international uh, conflicts between 1918 and 1921. Lithuania is involved in three of them, Latvia and Estonia at least in two. So you have these wars happening almost simultaneously or overlapping with each other. And at the same time, when they're happening, you also have in internal social turmoil happening in all of these societies. Uh, different military fighters, warlords, bands of robbers, you know, trying to establish themselves. So that's why I, I prefer this term. But I also occasionally use another term, which is, which is called uh, the frontier wars. And uh, also, I think it, it is less ideologically loaded term um, to describe, you know, these conflicts. But frontier wars, for me, implies also the struggle for mental frontiers of new societies, not only for new state borders and physical frontiers of states. Because uh, this conflict uh, after the Great War was about really uh, making new citizens of, of new uh, nation states. And not only nation states, but also the revolutionary states as well. It was about identities of people. So you have these political projects fighting for the allegiance of these multiple uh, multi-ethnic populations in, in, in the borderland region. So it's about mental fr frontiers, it's about mentalities of people. How, how do you drag them into your political projects? The French history community out there is very happy to hear us talking about mentalité, I, I'm sure, to top it off uh, with a podcast centered on Lithuania. Um, yeah, no end to the layers of the onion skin in the post-First uh, World War situation in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, that was a great journey into uh, Lithuania. I want to thank you, um, Dr. Balkilis, for joining us today. The book, by the way, for those of our listeners who now are into Lithuania in a way that they never knew that they were before and want to catch up on the latest scholarship and, and the ideas that uh, we spoke about today. The book is War, Revolution and Nation Making in Lithuania, 1914 to 1923. And we will provide some links uh, to where our listeners who want to get the book can find it uh, online in the podcast description. So Dr. Balkilis, I want to thank you uh, once again for joining us today. It was, uh, it was a great chat and I have to say it opened my eyes to some further levels of complexity 
in, uh, in Lithuania in the post-First World War period. So thank you very much. Thank you very much as well.